Uh, hi, this is a long episode. It's about an hour all in. That's a good twice as much as our normal episode. Um, I, I think it makes sense. And if you listen to it, it all flows pretty well. Um, but just warning you now that, that it goes on a lot longer. All right. Welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. As usual for a Tuesday episode, our friend and producer Hugo Lindgren is here with me. Hugo, how's it going? Good morning, Bradley. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Lot to uh, lot to talk about today. You and I have been texting back and forth furiously all weekend with lots of different ideas. So let's kick it off. Bradley, you've been texting me furiously all weekend. You've you've like created this pretty this pretty significant agenda for today about like basically some of the biggest problems the country's facing. You have both a kind of policy idea for each one or a bunch of policy ideas, and then also some sort of personal views of each one as well. Yeah. The way that this all started was the assassination of, of Shinzo Abe in Japan. And I shot you a note saying, has the world always felt this off kilter, right? And that was sort of the very beginning of this conversation. And then that led to a discussion between us as to why the world at least feels so off kilter about it. I then kind of surveyed my pro consultant text group, a couple of different friends who have really good thoughts on this stuff, um, and ultimately came up with a list in my mind of what are the forces driving this global instability and unhappiness? What can we do about it from a policy standpoint? And what do you do about it? Or at least what am I doing about it from a, a personal standpoint just to, to cope with it and live with it? So um, I, I thought it might make sense to go through them. So you, you want to start doing that? Yeah, yeah. So so the first problem you identified um, is uh, income inequality. Uh, you, you wrote here, which I, I'm a little confused by, visibility structural unfairness. What, what, are, you, what are you talking about? Yeah, there? so I, I think what we have is this. So we have massive income inequality in the world, right? And so by definition, it puts the decision-making power in the hands of too few people who are just based on human instinct and nature, generally going to look out for themselves at the expense of everyone else. So one is the people making the decisions are too few people making the decisions with too much self-interest and power. But the next part is visibility, which is not only is there the haves and the have nots, but because of the internet, because of television, because of social media, everyone desperately sees constantly what the haves have, right? And wants that and covets that and gets angry when they don't have it, right? So it's not just that some people have more than they probably need and, and most people don't have enough. It's that the people don't have enough. It, their nose is getting shoved in it all day, every day. And yeah, should they be watching these shows on Bravo? Probably not. I don't see if that's healthy for them. They shouldn't be looking at Instagram either, but they are. And as a result, not only is there massive inequality, but the feeling of it is far more potent than ever simply because um, it's so much more visible. And then the third thing I wrote, as you said, was structural unfairness, which is it, it's not just that we have a small group of the population that control a lot of the wealth, but I think for a lot of people in different demographics, genders, race, sexual orientation, everything else, their ability to ascend to the top of that pile is even more limited um, than it is for, for someone like me. And so that creates even greater frustration and distrust in the system. So that's the problem. Do you want to go through all the problems and then the solutions, or should I do solutions? No, I think I think that would because we have we have seven problems. I think that would get um, we would forget what they were by the time no, we got to the end. Okay. Let's start, let's walk through now. You have uh, UBI, universal basic income, basic safety net, um, reparations, education reform, vocational, understand linear versus nonlinear careers. So stop the start at the top with UBI. Okay, so look. Universal basic income is an idea that's been around for a long time. I think it was originally really championed by Martin Luther King uh, back in the 1960s. 
Andrew Yang and his presidential election kind of revived the idea uh, and put it back into the discourse and dialogue again. And, and to me, it's a pretty simple and really powerful idea, which is everyone who lives in this country, and let's just, everything we're going to talk about is either applies specifically to the U.S. or to the first world. Um, the solutions I'm outlining do not apply to the rest, to the, to the third world, or except there is a second world, second world. Um, so um, UBI basically says everyone needs this minimum amount of money to survive, and they should have it. Right? We shouldn't move away from a capitalist system because it produces the greatest amount of wealth and innovation for the greatest number of people. But at the same time, it, it's very lumpy in its distribution, and we should make sure that people have the basics of what they need, one, because it's morally the right thing to do, and two, so they don't revolt and cut off your heads. Right? Um, and so there's two ways to do that. The, the socialists of the world would say, they would agree and say taxes should be 80 90%. And the government can create lots of programs to to bail people out. Generally speaking, as someone who has worked in government, run governments, but also worked in the private sector for a long time, I'm skeptical of that approach simply because um, half of that money will get frittered away for all kinds of corruption and waste or just basic politics and bad decision making. And if a dollar goes out of my pocket to help people in need, they're going to see 50 cents of that and 50 cents will just get completely wasted. Whereas if it went to universal basic income, a dollar out of my pocket is a dollar in someone else's pocket. And look, will 5% of the people spend it all on hookers and blow? Yeah, probably. Uh, but I think the vast, vast majority <laughs> of people- very old school hookers and blow. You know, it just seemed like a good combination. Um, <laughs> the, the vast, vast majority are either going to use the money to for savings for things they care about or to pay down debt uh, or just to help them get by every single day. And so- I do think that people like me who have a lot of wealth um, should have to give some of it to other people. I just think that if I'm going to do that, I want them to actually get the money and get help from it and benefit from it. And having negotiated government budgets a lot and knowing what goes into the sausage making, um, I think you have to circumvent that process. So that that's UBI. With the that next said, is, uh, reparations. Well, let me go to the basic safety net. So. What that said, oh. the point of UBI is to um, supplant a lot, of, yeah. a lot of government services, right? That, that That's the idea is if you are providing people directly with cash assistance and they don't necessarily need as much in the form of, you know, uh, welfare or anything else. But at the same time, I still think you have to have a very basic safety net on top of UBI. And so the issue that our listeners are familiar with that I talk about a lot is universal school meals. I think it's a good example here, which is um, the kids aren't getting the checks, right? And it's very possible that their parents are getting the checks and using them for the right things. Uh, it's also possible that they're not. It seems to me that just to make sure that every kid has the food they need so that they can be healthy and pay attention in school and everything else, we still ought to have pro expanded programs like universal school meals for every single kid, breakfast and lunch in every single school in this country. So part of it is is that. The, the third, as I mentioned, is reparations. This will feel a little out there and maybe a little inconsistent with my politics to a lot of the listeners. But um, when I was in Illinois, I remember we dealt with the issue of medical malpractice reform. Um, the uh, doctors were pushing very, very, very hard to limit liability. The plaintiff's lawyers were pushing very, very hard to stop that legislation. We were kind of in the middle of it. And the, one of the things that I remember from it was a significant number of people at least said 
that had the doctor just apologized for what he or she did, um, that's what they needed, right? And they didn't necessarily want or need to sue and be involved in long-term litigation and everything else. They just needed to sort of hear that the person was sorry and feel validated by it and be able to move on with their lives. Um, obviously, slavery and medical malpractice are two, two very different issues, but it just seems to me that despite whatever we've done in this country in the form of social programs to try to even things out a little bit, you have a whole class of people that were literally taken from their homes, enslaved, had no rights, uh, beaten, often murdered, and this country did it, right? And and sure, you know, my we'll all say, well, it wasn't my people, my people to come to this country until the 50s, or you'll say your people were in Sweden at the time and they weren't doing anything. And, and maybe true, but nonetheless, we choose to live here, we choose to live in a society that in many ways still derives the benefits uh, or an economy that derived the benefits of slavery. And so I think we should pay reparations. And it's not that I think reparations are going to then radically transform the lives of every African-American in this country. I just think that we need to acknowledge, like, this terrible, terrible thing happened, and we are sorry, and it was wrong. And while we can never really make it up to you, uh, we're going to do this thing to at least try. Um, and I don't know if it's a trillion dollars or a couple trillion dollars or less. And I, I don't know if it takes the form of, of direct cash or something else. But I, I really do think, like, uh, this country is always going to be stuck if we can't move past basic racial animosity. And I don't see how we do that um, without really acknowledging and apologizing for what happened. Okay, the next category uh, Wait, is, me, is oh, you want more. to keep on reparations? No, but uh, ed reform, yeah. Yeah. So, so the other thing is this, which is we have a school system that is not set up for one, today's economy, and two, for the best interests of kids, right? We have a school system that made sense maybe when you had uh, a traditional nuclear family structure where one of the parents, typically the mom, stayed at home, um, and really was able to focus on the kids' academics. And the theory was everybody would learn enough to give them the ability to go to college, get a liberal arts degree, see what life they really enjoy and explore that. But the reality is that hasn't worked at all, right? Our high schools across this country are, are generally pretty pitiful. Um, and there are some meaningful changes that we have to make if we want a system that is for the benefit of more than the teachers' unions who control the system right now. So one would be vocational. Not everyone needs to be, uh, you know, a podcaster or a public intellectual <laughs> nonsense. You and I think we are. Um, there are a lot of people who could be plumbers or, you know, welders or whatever it is and have really good careers and make a good living. And why don't we, for people who are clear that they don't want a liberal arts education, I think by the time you're 14, 15, 16, you have a pretty good sense of that. Give them another track. Give them a way to be able to learn skills with, or directly applicable in today's economy and society and don't don't shoulder them with tons and tons of debt by making them go to for-profit vocational schools um, recognize that this is the path that they would prefer it's totally voluntary and go on that that's number one number two is you know we just we have a system that we know doesn't work and yet a lot of the solutions like vouchers like charter schools are denied in a lot of places simply because it's not in the best interest of the teachers union for as long as we have a system where the needs of the teachers union and the adults in the system prevail upon the needs of the kids our school system is never going to work um, and that's why i don't think teachers unions should be allowed to make political contributions i don't think any municipal union should be allowed to make political contributions 
or um, directly engage in campaigns. Now, I know the Supreme Court might disagree with that. I know when Scott Walker tried that in Wisconsin, it was highly unpopular. Um, I know that it probably feels like whiplash. I was asking for reparations a minute ago, and now I'm talking about not allowing unions to engage in politics. Um, but nonetheless, if you're willing to just be an independent thinker and not feel like you have to subscribe to the ideology of the far left or the far right or anyone else, you can support both reparations and then oppose certain types of unionization. That's the case here. Um, in terms of personal solutions, the only thing I would say is uh, anyone's saying money's not important is lying, right? My life is easier now that I have a lot of money. Um, it wasn't bad before I did, um, but it's just, it's easier. It's nicer. There's no way to, to argue otherwise. But fundamentally, if, if you look at happiness science and behavioral economics, and I spent a lot of time studying this, reading this, listening about podcasts about everything else, the two factors that really drive happiness in humanity are relationships and fulfillment. Um, we've talked about the Grant study on this podcast before. It was a study that Harvard started in the 1930s. It took a group of sophomores uh, in that particular class that year and then working class young men in Boston and basically tracked them for the rest of their lives and really did incredibly intricate research into sort of how their lives developed, why they developed that ways, and as a result, what were the trends that actually mattered and made a difference. And what that study found is relationships were pretty much everything. People who had stable, happy relationships, and it could be with a spouse, it could be with children, it could be with friends. There was no specific as to who it had to be with. The people who had that in their lives were typically meaningfully happier than people who did not. The second one is fulfillment, right? So look, we work for a living. You know, All of us, including me, have things on our schedule every day that we'd rather not deal with. Um, but nonetheless, if we can find fulfillment either through our work, because some of it makes you feel good about what you're doing, or personally by engaging different types of communities, religion, volunteering, whatever it is, that feeling of fulfillment goes an incredibly long way. And if you have really secure attachments and relationships and you can bring fulfillment into your life in one form or another, um, you still would prefer to have a lot of money, but some of the feeling of, oh, I don't have what I want um, is a little less bad because ultimately you have the things that really do matter. Okay, so that's the end of the first sort of problem that you've identified. And now the second problem, number two, are these in order of of magnitude or seriousness or is they- No, or is that no that just has, as they occur to me. Okay, so the second problem you've identified is social media and the, the, the sort of underlying goal of, of capitalism to promote the consumption of goods and make us want more all the time. Yeah. So this kind of plays into the first one, which is there's wild disparity in who has stuff and who doesn't. But also part of the problem is that disparity is so heavily seen, widely seen and heavily promoted uh, that it really aggressively furthers discontent. Right. Social media has become the ultimate tool to fuel anger, conspiracy theories, organize people who are unhappy with the status quo, sometimes for the better, but also sometimes for the worse. But then also on top of that, as much as I just extol the values of capitalism and its virtues, and I believe that, I mean, literally my job is called venture capitalist. Um, our advertising- That's one of your jobs. One of my jobs. <laughs> our, our advertising system in this country is based on saying, you will feel better about your life. You will be happier if you buy this product, whatever it is, whether it's a tube of toothpaste or a box of cereal or an iPod or I mean, AirPods or whatever else. Um, you will be happier if you own this thing. And the entire advertising system we have is designed to make you feel bad about yourself so that you try to feel therefore better about yourself by buying something. Just like in social media, 
you try to feel better about what you don't have and seeing other people have by posting things that they then like or sharing things that, that get you attention. It's the dopamine hits that come from all of that. But ultimately, um, it is far more destructive than it is helpful. I think it drives unhappiness, discontent. Um, and, you know, one of the key uh, areas that, that behavioral economics focuses on is, is relativity, which is people's happiness often is not based on an absolute. It's where do I stand relative to my peers in terms of my job, my income, my house, my family, whatever it might be. And so a lot of people who you know, may not have everything, but relatively speaking, are doing pretty well, it used to be very happy. But now, of course, they still see what they don't have because of social media. And it, it's so in their face all the time that it, even, even that value kind of gets washed away. And so um, while I'm not advocating to end social media, we can go through the policy ideas in a second. I, I think there's now over a decade of evidence that allowing it to just proliferate in its current form is incredibly destructive and harmful. And the point of government is to step in when something like that is the case. So, so how do we take the teeth out of it? What are what are some of the what are some of the mechanisms? Yeah, so so these are three things that I think the listeners are probably almost sick of hearing me talk about. Um, but the first one is there's a provision in federal law, the uh, Federal Communications Decency Act, um, called Section 230, and what that does is it prevents. Twitter and Facebook and the other platforms from being held liable for the content posted by their users. So you could post something really malicious uh, about me. I could sue you for that. I might recover. I might not. But I can't touch Facebook. But the reality is, what am I going to recover for you, right? I mean, the you know ultimately what you need is the platforms to have enough content moderation to not allow this kind of toxicity in the first place and protect people from each other and not have their sites turn into just, you know, places where people go to, to fight and feel bad about themselves. Um, and yet they have no economic interest in doing that because fundamentally the more clicks there are, the more money they make. And this is a sad thing to say about humanity, but we're more likely to click on negative stuff than we are on positive stuff. Um, if you eliminated section two thirty, said, okay, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, whoever, um, you're liable for whatever's on that platform. So you control it as you see fit. But, you know, uh, the people who, who feel like they were defamed on that platform or, or bullied or anything else now have the legal ability to come after you and recover from you. Nothing will get them to get their shit together and figure out better content moderation standards and how to actually enforce them uh, than the fear of and reality of massive amounts of, of litigation. Um, that's what will drive it. So really in the case, this case, I'm saying let the plaintiffs bar loose send them after the platforms, that will change behavior, that will make the internet a less terrible place. Uh, what else will do it? Privacy. So th this country has basically no framework for protecting data or privacy uh, of any Americans. I think we're at the point now where your kids and mine don't even have an expectation of privacy, right? To them, it almost seems like something that, well, why should I have that? Um, but in Europe, there's a program called GDPR that does have more protections for consumers. Uh, California passed a law called the CCPA that is somewhat similar. Um, but generally speaking, the U.S. still doesn't have any laws in place to protect people, protect their data, protect uh, their personal information or anything else. Um, and as a result, that makes us all that much more vulnerable on the internet to being exploited, being scammed, being taken advantage of, being made to feel terrible about ourselves, uh, and a stronger privacy law uh, would limit some of that as well. 
And what about the antitrust move against the social media companies? Yeah, same, same thing, which is, you know, these companies are just way too big, way too powerful. And the real point of antitrust law is actually to protect innovation, right? It's to say that we want there to constantly be change and disruption. And when any one company gets so big that no one can compete with them, they eventually grow stagnant and, and they hurt innovation, right? They, they, they make it impossible for people to come up with new ideas and to compete with them because they just have way too much market power. And whether it was Ma Bell or Standard Oil or whatever it is, today's version of that is Facebook, it's Amazon, it's Google, it's Apple, it's Microsoft. Um, and they have way too much power and that ultimately is bad for innovation, it's bad for economy, the economy, it's bad for consumers. Uh, we've seen some antitrust legislation move in the US Congress, uh, got bipartisan support in the Senate. I thought that was really encouraging. Um, Everybody feels it's coming, that's for sure. Yeah, on the flip side, I testified at an FTC hearing a couple of months ago where I basically just said everything I said now, and then I followed up with the people who had asked me to testify, and I said, okay, so what's next? And they're like, well, nothing. We just have to see if Congress does anything. <laughs> Definitely not how I would run it. Well, nothing. Nice yeah. So, you know, you still have to bet on Congress, which is always a terrible bet. But but my hope is that... Um, is that we will see it. And, and then the final thing on, on personal, although I'm supposed to let you raise these topics. Yeah, you're supposed to let me raise that. What's the final thing on the personal? Um, <laughs> I think just don't use it. And I, I know that's easy to say, but you know what? I don't use it. I, I do have a Twitter account. I don't know the password. Megan and Basil do it for me. Um, I have asked them multiple times to, that we should consider deleting it uh, so that I am kind of intellectually morally consistent with what I'm saying on here. They argue back that we have, you know, enough followers for whom it makes sense to say, hey, it's kind of like having like an ad in the yellow pages at this yeah, point. Yeah, there's a new column out, whatever it is. We don't really engage too much in sort of actual back and forth arguing arguing with anyone. But overall, um, I don't I don't use it. I stay off of Twitter. I, st I don't have a Facebook account. I, I don't go on Instagram. I don't have a TikTok account. Um, I stay off of Reddit. And look, I'm someone that actually gets talked about on these platforms, right? And so if I want to find bad shit said about myself, I could probably do it almost every single day and find somebody complaining about something that I'm doing, right? And so on one hand, that may create incentive for me to avoid it. On the other hand, that may create incentive and attraction for me to want to see what people are saying. And it took me a very long time to just realize it doesn't fucking matter what they say. It's right. the only thing that matters is basically what I think and what the people close to me think. And that's it. Um, and I learned not to use social media. And I think it's made me a lot happier. So my advice would just be um, don't use it. And you may think you need it for your social life or anything else. But fundamentally, it will materially decrease your happiness over time. Well, I think people of our generation uh, don't have that hard a time uh, detaching from it. I think it's, it's pretty difficult for teenagers. It's so yeah. in the water in terms of how they... Uh, operate in the world that um, it, it's, I mean, there are kids who obviously don't use it, but it's, it's, uh, it's, that's where the real problems are, wouldn't you say? Yeah, yeah, agree, agree. agree. But look, also, again, if you had liability for the platform, so they had to moderate the content, and you had stronger privacy laws to protect people and their privacy and their data, and you had antitrust laws that didn't allow these platforms to become so powerful in the first place, um, it would make the experience far less bad so that if people aren't able to avoid using it, there will at least be some protections for them. Problem number three, mental health. Yeah. Um, I mean, looks like the assassination in Japan was a case of, of just, you know, a disturbed person who thought that 
uh, Abe was the head of a cult uh, or some sort of religious organization that his mom had joined and given money to. Obviously, that wasn't the case. Um, but we see this all the time. There's a massive mental health crisis across the world, and whether that results in physical violence or self-harm or anything else, uh, it, it, this is sort of sweeping the entire world. Um, the pandemic obviously made it a lot worse. The internet obviously makes it um, a lot worse. Um, but with all that said, my guess is that people's mental health has never been what we would want it to be. This is just the first time in history that we're paying enough attention to it to notice, right? So in some ways, it's a sign of progress that now it's even being talked about. But I would argue that mental health is just as important as physical health. In fact, if your mental health is strong, your physical health tends to be stronger as a result. Um, if you are not constantly anxious and worried about everything all the time, your immune system is stronger. Um, and as a result, uh, I think that if we handle the way I'll, I'll, I'll cue this up for you so I don't step on your toes again, but, <laughs> but if, if we change the way that we approach and view mental health, um, not only could we adjust or impact this crisis that we're in right now, um, but I think we could really help society and humanity going forward. So that's a uh, that's a federal thing. Like, how do you, what do you see? Yeah, it's everything, right? But I think what has to happen is mental health has to be considered to be equal in importance to physical health, right? And it should be that whatever funding is provided for people to get checkups or surgery or whatever else you know, that same ought to be available uh, to maintain their mental health, right? And it ought to be something that employers have to cover uh, as part of their insurance policies and something that Medicare and Medicaid has to cover. And yes, it will raise costs for people like me for sure. Um, but at the same time, uh, it would also, I think, just help people feel a lot happier in their lives, a lot calmer in their lives. And guess what? That would make them not just happier people, but more productive employees, right? And ultimately, you know, productivity and therefore GDP would go up uh, as a result of it. And so um, I think the, the stirrings of this are happening. You know, a couple of years ago, Jordan and I led the Series A of a called Alma. It's sort of an infrastructure company for therapists and mental health providers to be able to, to help other people. Um, and our view was the stigma around treatment was going to fade. And as a result, um, the uptake in it would be significantly higher. Obviously, we couldn't have predicted COVID, which expanded the uptake you know, exponentially more. Um, but, you know, it's a company that's not doing incredibly well. So, I, you know, we, we've kind of had our money where our mouth is on this one for a while. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I really think we have, at least now, awareness of the role of the mind and its impact on the body, its impact on our happiness, its impact on our decision-making. And we know what some of the tools are, right? Not all of them. So, for example... Well, let me ask you that. So how do you manage your personal mental health in a way that's different say i mean a lot of people go to therapists a lot of people exercise what are ways things that you do that are a little out of the ordinary that you find effective? i do a lot of things and some of them and i was about to say and i said some podcasts before i have fairly severe ocd uh and i've you know, been diagnosed with it i'm treated for it um they don't really understand it right it's some kind of anxiety disease they can throw medicine at it to treat the symptoms which is what they do with me um, they still don't fundamentally understand what causes it in the first place. And so there's still a long way to go on a lot of it. But look, um, and look, I am lucky to be able to prioritize my mental health in the sense that my privilege, my wealth basically allows me to structure my day generally however the fuck I want. Um, so look, I go to therapy once a week. I try mindfulness. I'm incredibly bad at it, but I just sort of re-engaged in it a little bit because I really do think it would help me. Um, I pray every single morning. Um, I exercise four or five times a week. Um, I try to really be 
self-aware of how I'm feeling and why and what, what impacts it. Um, and then I did something to me, and I've talked about this before on the podcast, that was really fundamentally important, which was I underwent ketamine therapy uh, the first part of 2022. And what ketamine therapy does is it, allow, it increases temporarily the neuroplasticity of your brain. And so like when you're a kid, you can kind of, you're a sponge and you can absorb new concepts and new ideas, both intellectually and emotionally. And then as you get older, that becomes much, much harder because your brain becomes much, much more rigid. And so there are things that you might intellectually know are right, but you feel the other way because of the traumas of your childhood or whatever society or whatever else. Um, and to me, the attempt for ketamine was how do I reopen some things to take things that I know intellectually to be true and process them and feel them emotionally as well. Um, it was incredibly transformative for me. Um, I think it, it, having the ability to kind of open my brain a little bit and say, Hey, you not only can know these things, but you can feel them too, was unbelievably important. With that said, before everyone goes and rushes to ketamine therapy, I think it works if you have a very specific goal, which was there were things about myself that I knew I shouldn't feel bad about intellectually, but yet I kind of couldn't make myself feel better about emotionally. Um, and I put a lot of work into it. Uh, ultimately ended up writing about a 25 page document that was sort of the product of my different ketamine sessions. And I refer to it and read it at least once a day. So that's sort of another form of therapy for you, me. You, you refer to it and read it every day. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And, and I work on it. I edit it to based, based on how I'm feeling at that moment or I'm thinking and everything else. So I, you know, I do think ketamine and generally psychedelic therapy can be helpful for people but you have to go into it with a very, very clear plan of what you want to achieve. And it's not about getting fucked up and having fun. It, it, it's really about being able to, to change the way that your mind processes things. So it worked really well for me. I would recommend it, but I'd only recommend it if you can recognize that you're in a situation where having it, should you put the work in, can materially improve things for you. We are at problem number four, Bradley, which okay. is um, the when it comes to public institutions, uh, no American has confidence in anything. I think that's a fair, uh, <laughs> or at least confidence is dropping and was low to start with and dropping across the board. Um, I'm going to, there's a Gallup poll that you, yeah. uh, that you sent me. I'm going to, I'm going to say the, the, the thing that, uh, jumped out at me, uh, that was most, uh, distressing, depressing, um, although not surprising was that confidence in the U.S. presidency has dropped the most of all the categories, 15 points from, what, 38 to 23 um, over the, just the last year. Um, pretty much everything is down. The only category of the dozen, two dozen categories that were listed there, the only one that did not drop um, that stayed even was labor unions, which uh, started from a very low base. So that was not um, right. really good news. It was just no news. Um, so this is an endemic problem. Is it, is it, one question I have for you though, is it, is it real? Yeah. Well, let me, because I think if anything, Hugo, you still might've understated it, which is, (laughs) um, it's not just that it's dropping. It's that when you look at the absolute raw numbers, um, and you think about it, it it, it tells you everything to know. So Congress, 7% of the population has uh, a great deal of confidence in Congress. I mean, 93% of us do not. And by the way, I'm amazed that 7% even still do. So that means the body that makes the most important laws in our country, nobody trusts, no one has faith in. Um, TV news, 11, 
same thing. It, it's become completely balkanized and, and partisan. That, that's, I would argue that's true with newspapers as well, which wasn't much better at 16. So whether it's Fox News on the right um, that basically runs a program to make people feel aggrieved and, and better about themselves by hating other people, or the New York Times on the left, which does the exact same thing, um, no one trusts them at all. Uh, big business, which I kind of guess means Wall Street, 14%, no surprise there. Um, presidency, like you said, 23%. U.S. Supreme Court, 25%. So even a body of nine people who are supposed to be completely apolitical, completely independent, three-quarters of the country doesn't think that about them. They think that they are just um, as as sort of partisan and biased and self-interested in everyone else. Large technology companies, once you talk about 26%, banks, 27%, public schools, 28%. So more than seven in 10 people think our public schools stink. That may be an argument to do something about it. Um, the church, <laughs> it 31%, and so on. So, you know, the, the, the reality of all of this is that people do not have any trust in institutions uh, in any point in society. And what does that lead to? Right. It, it leads to um, a real breakdown in, in the fabric of who we are. If, if you don't think that an institution is able to help you or is looking out for you, um, then, it, then it's kind of every man for himself or every person for herself or whatever the phrase should be right now. Um, and so let's do it. Let's let's talk about the policy fixes for this, because this obviously brings us around to to one of your one of your most passionate. Yeah. And, and let me just this is, you know, remember we talked um you know, six months or so, I, I'd read kind of a Sapiens-like book, um, and we spent a whole episode talking about uh, what I had read and learned. I'm not forgetting the name of the author. Do you remember? No, I'm I'm forgetting it too. But I'm going to look it up while you're while you're talking. Belgian guy. Um, but but oh, yeah, the, the thing that stuck with me the most was he was talking about that there were originally seven different types of human species. And that the Neanderthal, uh, unlike popular perception, was not only bigger and stronger, but actually much smarter um, as well. But the reason why Homo sapiens won out is we could cooperate. We could work together. And the combined impact uh, of our abilities ended up being significantly greater than the individual impact of any particular Neanderthal or other species. Um, and that's why we won out. When there is no trust in any institution, you lose the ability to have combined effects and impacts. Everyone is just running around doing their own thing. And as a result, the ability to produce change in society and improve people's lives is dramatically weaker. So what do we do about it? Obviously, people on this listeners podcast regularly know that um, I believe that at least in this country, mobile voting is the solution to a lot of our political problems. If you accept the basic premise of this podcast, which is that every single policy output is the result of a political input, um, then you would say that politicians will only do whatever they have to do to stay in office. And if you want them to do different things on a policy level, you have to give them the right political incentives to do so. Um, and right now we live in a world where because of gerrymandering, the only elections that matter typically are the primaries. Primary turnout is typically 10 to 20%. Those that do vote tend to be the most ideological and partisan on either side. And so therefore, the message to pretty much every elected official, whether it's a United States senator or city council member or anyone else, is as long as you're impure with the base, you're okay. You're going to win your next primary, and then odds are you're going to win your next election as a result of it. Um, so all of their incentives are to accomplish nothing and do nothing. If turnout went from 15% to 35 or 40% because people can now vote on their phones, that would change, right? Because the nature of who the voting population would change, they would become more mainstream, more centrist, more interesting solutions, and not wildly opposed to working with the other party or with other people to try to come up with compromise that, that can help things. And so to me, mobile voting is the only way 
to change the underlying inputs and incentives for politicians to bring things back to the middle and have them act, act in the best interest of the people um, overall. So I think that's sort of number one, and I, I don't know if we'll succeed or not. Um, I think we'll certainly succeed technologically. Uh, we're 60% we're of the way there of building our own mobile voting technology now, and that's after having already funded 21 different mobile voting elections with weaker technology that also was totally fine. Um, but, you know, the entire status quo is going to oppose this, right? Republicans, Democrats, unions, lobbyists, trade groups, because anyone who enjoys power in today's disproportionately low primary turnout is not going to want to make it easier to lose that power. So I, I don't know if I win this fight or not. I think long term we do just because technology ultimately always wins. So maybe in 25 years, we're all voting on our phone, no matter who opposes it. You think it's going to take 25 years? Oh, I think if I... This is sort of a little megalomaniacal. If I did nothing, and the reason I'm saying I is we really are the only people doing this, right? right. I'm funding the entire movement out of my pocket. Um, if we did nothing, I think it might take 20, 25, 30 years. Uh, by us pushing really hard and forcing the argument out there in public, building our own safe technology that's completely secure, uh, you know, convincing people to give it a shot, getting attention for it, building support on, on platforms like TikTok, um, all of that maybe means that we can get this done in 10 years as opposed to 25 years. So that's sort of what we're fighting for here. But that's 15 years, if that works, of, of accomplishments, of consensus, of the ability to do something about education or immigration or guns or climate change or healthcare or any other topics because politicians are now incentivized to work together and accomplish things. So I would argue that if we have 25 more years of this kind of dysfunction and partisanship, uh, we won't be one country, right? Instead of 7% of people saying that they're confident in Congress, you know, you'll have literally nobody. And then eventually the conclusion is we shouldn't remain in the current system we have. And whether that means we split up into seven or eight different countries or two different countries, if we split up to some kind of version of the EU, I don't know. But I truly believe that if something like mobile voting doesn't happen in the next decade, we will no longer be one country. The only other thing that I could think of that I think would be very, very helpful, and maybe this one in some ways is more likely because it doesn't require uh, a massive movement uh, against the interests of those in power, is that the parties themselves split. Right. That ultimately the social well, that is a challenge to those in power, isn't it? I mean, it's maybe not as big a challenge, but it's pretty significant. You know, so let's say you're Nancy Pelosi. Right. And AOC decides she's going to create her own. The DSA is going to have its own ballot lines. It's just not going to be the part of the Democratic Party anymore. I think you actually, in a weird way, prefer that because while, yes, you won't have as much control over AOC once she enters Congress as the leader of her own coalition, um, at the same time, all of your mainstream members who are not socialists now are not running against socialists in their primary, don't have to feel the need to get nothing done and be incredibly partisan because the people now voting in their primary are more centrist and more mainstream actually want things to get done. So I, th I think it actually would make life easier for the mainstream legislative leaders and political parties, whether it's a city or state or federal government, um, if that were to happen. You know, yes, coalition governments are tricky too. We've seen Israel, we've seen the UK. So even countries that feel reasonably well governed um, still struggle in different ways. But I think that if the socialists split off from the Democratic Party and there was some sort of split in the Republican Party, you know, you could look at it ideologically and say like libertarians, I think the reality is gonna be Trumpers and non-Trumpers, right? Um, right? But if you had four parties instead of two, then those who vote in the primaries will shift as well. So the two more mainstream parties that remain, the Democrats and the Republicans, have a far more centrist primary voting base, which means that the inputs change and they have the ability to get things done. Right. Um, how do you do this, though? So that's you're, you're talking about big societal shifts, uh, you know, or 
in terms of like mobile voting, in terms of the party splitting, those are massive events. How do you deal with this in your own sort of personal way? Like, so I know you fund mobile voting. Yeah. Um, but what, what do you do as a human? Day I mean, I think day? you got you to find your own communities, right? So in a world that feels so dysfunctional, in a world where you can't trust, feels like any institution or anyone in power at all, you know, you have to either create or be part of your own subcultures where you do see um, consensus and you do see people working together. So like for me, for example, on Thursdays, uh, I volunteer at a soup kitchen on 16th Street. Um, and one of the reasons that I really like doing it is it's a lovely group of people. We've been working together for a decade now. Um, and I see them every Thursday morning and I have the things that I do. I make the coffee and the tea and I slice all the bread and butter it and whatever else that I do every single week. And I'm part of a community. And as a result, even if I don't trust uh, the government as a whole, I do see people working together for the benefit of people who don't have food, right? And to me, that not only feels good and creates a film that makes me happier, but it creates some ability to replace the great vacuum caused um, by lack of trust. You ready for problem number five? I'm ready. This is kind of getting a little heady here, Bradley. This is um, uh, first world demographic shifts are, I mean, are, are significant and major. What, what are you talking about here? Is that in some ways, um, countries that are homogenous um, still have problems, but they tend to have fewer problems because there's there's fewer competing points of view, uh, and as a result, you know there's more ability to have consensus and solve problems. So, for example, the left always holds up Scandinavia as the model for everything. And look, they clearly get a lot of stuff right, but they're fairly homogenous societies, and so the task ahead of them is a lot easier. Than a really diverse country. So if you just stick in Europe, you know Scandinavia is you know much more successful because it's very homogenous. But take country like Germany, which is not far to the south, that has had a massive influx of Syrian refugees and other immigrants over the past decade. Um, they are not nearly as homogenous, and that has created a lot of strife in a place like Germany, uh, where you now have the rise of far right movements who are white supremacists and white nationalism. Obviously, it's terrifying to talk about the constant of Germany because of their history. But clearly here in the US with Trump, we saw the exact same thing. And so we just have to acknowledge, like, look, the first world is not what it used to be. And I say way for the better, because if it weren't for these demographic shifts, I, we wouldn't have come to this country and I wouldn't be recording this podcast with you right now. But overall, um, as, the, as the makeup of the population changes and becomes more diverse, um, we have to be able to live with that and accept it. And if we run a world where the whole political opportunity is to demonize people based on the color of their skin or their beliefs or anything else, um, it's going to do more to tear us apart than anything else. And that's why I think Trump was successful and why I think demagogues in general um, can find success. So, so to me, uh, and I had less of a policy solution to this um, other than I would say, I would go the other way with it and actually increase immigration. It's not that I don't think we should have controls at our borders. I just think the quotas should be much, much, much higher. Um, and the more and more talented, you know, moral people we let into this country, the more that debunks these ridiculous myths of immigrants being you know, dangerous or evil or anything else. So I would actually radically increase immigration in this country. Um, but on the personal side, it kind of led me to thinking about, and this is what you're talking about to getting a little heady, kind of Locke versus Rousseau versus Hobbes and kind of the basic nature of, you know, what should society be? What should your mindset be, right? And so Hobbes was a very Trumpy and very fixed mindset. Life is short and brutal and nasty and 
everyone's success comes at the expense of someone else's failure and it's every person for themselves. And you just have to get as much as you can 100% of the time, right? And, you know, the best embodiment of that that we saw recently was, was Donald Trump. That's clearly how he sees the world. Um, there's Rousseau that would say, no, we're all in this together as a broader society and our better instincts will prevail um, and we should form governments and we should form institutions, but do so in a way um, that really, you know, just basically reflects our individualism and our ability to kind of create. Um, and it's a very generous view of the world. It's not completely realistic either. It's, it's, a, it's better than a Hobbesian view where everything you're just opposed to everyone all the time. But the notion that no one has self-interest and no one acts on it, I think, is also sort of unrealistic and unreasonable. So Locke came in in the middle and basically said, look, uh, I'm more Rousseau than I am Hobbes, but we need systems, right? We need laws. We need law enforcement. We need contracts. Um, we need things to ensure that people um, live up to what they're supposed to do or obey the laws they're supposed to, to, to obey or whatever else. So I, I, I didn't get it done for this podcast, and obviously this one's too long already, but Maybe for next week, what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to work out what a modern-day interpretation of the Hobbesian, the Rousseau, and the Lockean uh, philosophies are for where we are today in this world, uh, 2022, that feels filled with peril, um, and kind of how would you restate each of those uh, in our current context. So uh, I'll do that next week. We have two more problems to address, um, the availability of guns, violence, um, as well as gender inequality, which is number seven. Yeah, again, these are not in order of importance. Um, they're just in the way they came up as you were putting together the episode. Um, why don't you Why don't you go with uh, guns, violence? Uh, obviously, there's a pretty clear policy solution there, albeit a difficult one to achieve politically. Yeah, and, and I'll move quickly because I know we're we're even coming up to the hour mark on this podcast. So thank you for those who are still hanging in there and listening. Um, look, we have a mental health crisis. We have an economic inequality crisis. Um, we have racial demographic crises. We have massive amount of unhappiness produced by technology and social media. And you, when you add into the mix that it's really easy to get a gun, at least in the United States, um, it leads to what we've seen, right? Which is like we just accept it as a fact of life now that there are mass shootings pretty much all the time in schools, in churches, in Walmarts, in different places all across our country. And we now just accept it and live with it. Um, and that's an insane thing to do, right? The notion that we say, yeah, some percentage of us are going to be murdered completely senselessly and randomly because we can't get our own shit together and control who should have access to an assault weapon and who shouldn't um, is basically the number one argument against the system of government we have right now and how ineffective it is and why you need to change it radically through something like mobile voting. You know, 70% of the people in this country would say you shouldn't go to everyone's home and confiscate their guns but you also shouldn't be able to walk into a store and walk out with an AK-47. However, those 70% don't bother to vote in primaries. The 15% on the left say no one should ever have a gun for any reason. The 15% on the right say everyone should carry a gun at all times. They're the only ones that actually matter uh, politically. And so as a result, it's hard to get anything done. Um, the Senate did you know, pass you know, what I would say some minor improvements around gun laws recently. But to me, that was the NRA and the right just saying, Things are so bad, we have to give them something. What's the least amount we can give them and make it look like we actually gave them something? And so mainly all of the new rules are not about restrictions to access to guns. They're about you know red flags and mental health and things that are important, but fundamentally shift the blame for, for gun violence to other factors. And so I, I don't think what the Senate did was all that 
uh, consequential. Um, so I, I think we've got to just make it harder to get guns. Um, but at the same time, and this may again seem very contradictory, I think we need a lot more law and order in this country, right? I think this sort of movement by the far left to defund the police, to get rid of the criminal justice system. You know, we saw the recall of the DA in uh, San Francisco. I think if you had a recall election in Manhattan for Alvin Brad, that might happen here as well. People might not even know his name, though, to recall him. Uh, if there's a recall election, people will make sure you know his name. <laughs> um, and so I think we need... It needs to be harder to get guns, but we also need to enforce basic quality of life laws. I believe in the broken windows theory. I think that when someone hops a subway turnstile, if you don't bust them for that, you're basically condoning the next act, which would be graffiti. I actually saw a cop stop a, a, someone from jumping a turnstile the other day. They didn't arrest them. They just made them go back. Okay, but look, something, right? Uh, but ultimately, and look, I know that now Rudy Giuliani is a nutcase and you can't say anything nice about him, but one thing that his mayoral administration did really well early on was the application of the broken windows theory. I think it was John Q. Wilson, who was a sociologist at the University of Chicago, I think. George Kelly, right? It was broken windows? Well, Ray Kelly was the, was the commissioner. No, George Kelly. Oh, Ray Kelly was Kelly? the I, th I thought it was James Wilson, but okay, maybe. Uh, maybe together. But e either way, the point is, when you let the little things slide, it creates a culture of chaos that then allows really bad big things to happen. So if you take New York City as an example, Bill de Blasio didn't enforce any quality of life laws. He didn't care if you were smoking pot on the street, you know, when it was illegal. Now it's legal, so it's different. He didn't care if you peed on the street. He didn't care if you urinated. He didn't care if you jumped the subway turnstile. He didn't care if you harassed somebody else. Um, and as a result, it went from a, a feeling of, of deteriorating quality of life to now a city that feels very dangerous and very lawless. Um, and some of that is because of the availability of guns and, and the pandemic and the moment we're in. But a lot of it is because he was too lazy and too arrogant um, to deal with the small things. And that led to really big problems. So while I think it should be much, much harder to get a hold of a gun, I think also we should enforce basic quality of life laws. I don't think we should let people sleep on the streets. Uh, I think there should be involuntary confinement. Um, I think we need to be able to have a society that's orderly enough, and I guess this is more towards a Hobbesian view of the world, um, that people can feel secure in going out in public and that they're going to be safe. Because if you can't feel secure and safe, why be part of the society at all, right? What am I paying for and what am I buying into if, if it can't do the number one basic thing of protecting me, right? Then why should I engage at all? It sort of helps you understand why people go to crypto. So um, I, I know that the two things I'm saying, one seems very left-wing and one seems very right-wing. But that's, but your, me, that's your brand, Bradley. The, the, two, the two go hand in hand. And then obviously the personal here, like don't buy a fucking gun, right? It, the odds of you shooting someone in your family or someone in your family hurting themselves or a friend or something else are so exponentially higher. And the odds of you stopping a robber or something else like that, um, that it, it's an incredibly stupid thing to do that is mainly driven by ego and machismo and things like that. Um, you just, it's very hard to argue, I guess hunting, whatever, but for personal protection, um, owning a gun is a stupid idea. Bradley, we are coming up on our on our final problem, yeah. number seven. Um, I, I, I feel like um, you should think about what you're going to offer listeners who can prove that they've gotten to this point in the podcast. Um, yeah, we will, um, we will give you a free bookmark from P&T Netware. So oh, free store. bookmark. Oh. Yeah, so, you know, we'll, we'll give you a free coffee. So you have to be able to go to the store and repeat things that I'm saying at this very last part of the podcast, you know, either verbatim or describe them. If you can do so, coffee's on me. Wait, wait, here's, here's the, here's the code for the free coffee. 
the name of the book that you were talking about before um, is is um, Humankind: A Hopeful History by Rutger Bregman. Yep. So I think if you go to the coffee guy, a coffee person um, at uh, at PNT Knitware, and you say Rutger Bregman sent me, you get a free coffee. Is that a deal? Yep, done. Or or James Q. Wilson. <laughs> James Q. Wilson. Okay, you, number well, seven. You go. Well, you, good, you, you text Julie after this and let her know. Yes, I will. Thank you. All right. So number seven, and, and I struggle with whether or not to make it its own category because in some ways, gender inequality fits into a lot of stuff we've already talked about. But it seems to me when you have a world where 50% of the population, one out of every two people feels that they are not treated equally under the law, they do not have the same rights, they do not have the same protections, they do not have the same privileges, that's a really big fucking problem. Right. And it's a really big problem in and of itself that if half of the people feel like they are not equal uh, in society, then, of course, there's going to be massive instability. Of course, things are going to feel off kilter. And to me, I don't understand why you wouldn't do everything possible to make everyone feel invested in society so that they're bought in and they're obeying the laws and they're paying taxes and they're creating and they're doing good things so that we have a better world. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, to me, at least, you know, Gender inequality is absolutely a major factor in the instability and, and volatility we feel right now. Um, and so, what are what what are the public policy like moves that are the, critical to that? That can I mean, be the first one, obviously, is abortion. Right, one of the reasons that I think people who are still listening to this might be shaking their head yes or nodding their head yes in agreement is. Supreme Court just took away the right of women to decide what to do with their own bodies. Uh, basically, mainly a bunch of dudes, white dudes, are telling women of every race, you know, every ethnicity, here's what you are allowed to do with your body, right? And I think that Dobbs is a terrible decision. Um, and look, that's why we're doing Mayday Health here, which is an education nonprofit that lets women in red states know if you still want to obtain abortion drugs, here's how you could choose to do it if you choose to do so. Here's how you could do it through mail forwarding. Here's how you can do it through telemedicine. Here's how you know and can protect your rights. Um, we're seeing last week with Biden's executive order, uh, maybe some move by the federal government to say that these drugs are federally approved by the FDA and therefore should still be available regardless of the state limitation on abortion. That'll go right back to the Supreme Court, but it'll take a little while to work its way through. But you know, if we can't repeal Dobbs or codify Roe, and I don't think either of those things are going to happen, um, then I think at least you know we need to support programs like May Day that still preserve this option for women because I think it's incredibly important. Two, two would be the Equal Rights Amendment. We've still never passed this thing, right? It kind of got a bunch of momentum in the early '70s and the kind of Gloria Steinem sort of heyday, and it's still out there. And there's you know I don't know at least a dozen or so states that haven't ratified it, and as a result, it's not part of our constitution. Now, look, it, is it maybe more symbolic than anything else? Sure, but just like we opened up this podcast by talking about reparations and saying. People need to hear um, that you take them seriously, that you care about them, that they are equal, and you need to get be apologized to when they were treated differently than that. Um, I think that's true for African Americans in this country. I think that's true for women all over the world. Um, and the third would be child care. And I, I think you can actually achieve this through universal basic income. I don't think you have to do this through a national government program. But, but one way or the other, um, if women are still generally tasked with the responsibility of raising children, um, it just definitionally makes it harder for them to be in the workforce, to pursue their ideas and their goals, to to make money and everything else, and to saddle half the population with the responsibility that ought to belong equally to all of us, to me, is, is, is crazy. 
Okay, so that leads us with the final thing in your own personal life. What is your, what do you do to sort of enhance and support gender equality? I mean, look, I'm doing Mayday, and you know, I think that's really important. And I think that we here at Tusk happen to be uniquely positioned where we can help pass laws to provide sanctuary for doctors in blue states. We can help publicize the whole thing. We can help raise money. Uh, you know, so we just it's right up our alley, and so we're very glad to be uh, to be part of it. Um, but, but look, fundamentally, um, I, I think it's a recognition that it's inherently easier for some people than it is for others. So look, have I achieved what I would consider to be nonlinear success at this point? Yeah. And the reason why you work for me and the reason why people are listening is because they think that too, or otherwise you wouldn't care what I have to say. At this, and I, did I take a lot of risk and work really hard and overcome a lot of failures and make a lot of sacrifice and everything else? Absolutely. Right. Um, at the same time, I'm a white dude in the United States of America, and the opportunities for me were significantly greater, and therefore converting on those was significantly easier than it is for women, for people of color, people of different sexual orientations, things like that. And so what I would say is it, it, we should be mindful of that, right? And we should recognize that it's easier for some people than others, and we should make it less hard for other people to succeed, right? And I, I think that you know, evening the playing field, whether it's through reparations or uh, ERA or, or anything else, um, it's really important if you want people to feel equally invested in society. If you don't want this kind of disruption, if you don't want this kind of volatility, people have to feel bought in and they can't feel bought in if they don't think they're getting a fair chance. Bradley, thank you for all that. We actually had a crazy notion when we started this that we might talk about other things on top of this, but we're going to let that go and we're yeah. going to save... Um, the topic, the incredibly important topic of um, your favorite sports that should be included in the Olympics. Yeah. We'll save that for next our, time. Our own personal X Games. We'll save that for next time. So next next week will be uh, a modern interpretation of Locke, Rousseau, and Hobbes plus a hot dog eating contest. <laughs> <laughs>